You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we are joined today by Captain Eric Telfer, who is a commanding officer of the Coast Guard Maritime Intelligence Fusion Center Atlantic in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Captain Telfer's previous tours include a mix of operational and intelligence assignments. Operationally, Captain Telfer has served as a group duty officer at Group Miami, as a deck watch officer on U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Reliance, and as executive officer of Group Upper Mississippi River, and as a commanding officer of the Pacific Tactical Law Enforcement Team in San Diego, California. Under his command, PAC-TAC-LET seized and disrupted 199,921 kilograms of cocaine and seized eight self-propelled semi-submersibles, all of which led to 214 man-years of prison for convicted smugglers. Additionally, he led the unit's integration into the Deployable Operations Group and standardized tactics, techniques, and procedures across the TACLET community. Captain Telfer's intelligence assignments include a watch officer at Command Control Communications and Intelligence East in Miami, Florida, Senior Watch Officer at the Coast Guard Intelligence Coordination Center, and three years as the Assistant Coast Guard Attaché in the U.S. Embassy, Mexico City, Mexico. More recently, Captain Telfer served as a Deputy Director for Coast Guard Counterintelligence and then as Executive Assistant to the Assistant Commandant for Intelligence and Criminal Investigations in Washington, D.C. A Spanish linguist, Captain Telfer holds a Master of Military Studies from the U.S. Marine Corps Command and Staff College, where he earned the CIA's Excellence in Intelligence Writing Award. He also holds a Master of Intelligence Studies with honors from American Military University. For a senior service school, Captain Telfer attended the National Intelligence University, where he was a fellow at the Center for Strategic Intelligence Research. His book, titled Unlimited Impossibilities, Intelligence Support to the Deepwater Horizon Response, was published in April of this year and is available for download or to read online via the NIU Press website, which is ni-u.edu. Any U.S. government employee may actually request a complimentary copy of this book by contacting NIU Press, and the general public may purchase a copy from the government printing office or on Amazon. Thank you, Captain Tell, for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's an honor uh, to be here, um, and uh, I was both flattered and surprised by the invitation, uh, quite frankly, and I'm, I'm glad we were able 
I was able to get up here after the months of back and forth and trying to get the schedule worked out. Absolutely. We're great to have you. So I want to start with a history of the Coast Guard intelligence just a little bit because we've had people on SpyCast from Army intelligence and Navy intelligence and even Air Force intelligence, but no one from the Coast Guard. And most people, I think, will be surprised by how far back Coast Guard intelligence goes. Can you give us a, a little brief overview of the history of what you do now for Coast Guard intelligence? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the father of the Coast Guard is Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he is the one who introduced the bill in Congress that we needed a uh, fleet of revenue cutters. They are sailing ships that were cutter rigged. That's why we call our ships cutters. Uh, and, and that bill went through in 1790. In June 1791, Alexander Hamilton wrote a letter to the commissioned officers of the Coast Guard listing what their duties and responsibilities were to be. Specifically outlined in that letter is that they are to observe and report on waterways, ports, navigation, and so forth and so on. So one of the initial missions of the Coast Guard, initial tasking, was the collection of information and intelligence as directed by Alexander Hamilton. Um, fast forward to the rum wars. Um, during Prohibition, the Coast Guard was very active in not only um, working to counter the smuggling, but also in the collection of intelligence, electronic intelligence, um, both intercepts and triangulation, that is using different radio stations in order to find out where uh, a vessel is based on the signals it sends out. And a lot of that took place um, in order to, to support um, the fight against um, Prohibition. Um, moving forward from that into World War II, the Coast Guard was able to take that expertise that it had in the rum wars when the Coast Guard was folded up underneath the Department of the Navy during the war and expand on that signal. It was Coast Guard intelligence really comes of age during World War II. Yes, very much so. Um, you know, the, the beginning of it was, was during the rum wars under the Freedmans. Uh, William Friedman and, and his wife, really, William Friedman kind of considered the father of NSA. So he had Coast Guard officers working for him. So when World War II broke out, they got folded back up into the Navy and had already been doing this type of collection and analysis and signals intelligence. Um, and so the Coast Guard had code breakers. Uh, the Coast Guard had a unit called uh, 387, which was involved in intercepts and deciphering uh, Japanese codes. The Coast Guard was very actively involved in breaking the uh, Maru codes, the Japanese merchant shipping codes. Of course, we know where their shipping is, the merchant shipping. That helps us engage them uh, into in, the ends of the war. So um, very robust, very much involved. Uh, Coast Guard also made up the majority of the OSS combat swimmers hmm. uh, that came over as well. And those folks were involved in uh, clandestine operations, collection, and, and reporting. Well, and that might surprise a lot of our listeners because they might think, you know, the the, the beginnings of the SEALs today should be Navy guys or uh, the OSS had Coast Guard members in it. That, that, that to me, may be something that surprises a lot of people. Um, it does, and it surprises Navy SEALs as well. <laughs> with, <laughs> with all due respect to their wonderful organization, and, and it is a great organization, but uh, um, out of the 226 um, OSS frogmen, which is actually what they were initially called at the time. Eighty-four of them were Coast Guard combat swimmers, um, and so the skills, the training techniques, and procedures that they pioneered, and then not just in the training, but in the insertion, the work in Thailand and Burma and China, um, has there's a straight line from that all the way forward to those special operations forces um, now that Department of Defense uses. And, and I've studied intelligence for years. I'm a professional intelligence historian, and I've never run into this information about how much the OSS was involved in this. Where, where is this coming from? Is this a new data that's just been released, or is this something that I, I just don't know about because I haven't read enough? Right. It, um, not new data, but newly released. 
Okay. Um, the Coast Guard um, had an officer who was doing a fellowship up at NSA, a gentleman named Mike uh, Bennett, Commander Mike Bennett. And during his research, he uh, discovered many, many files, still classified, top secret. These are files from World War II. And uh, as he tells it, they were scheduled for destruction. They need room up there, just like mm-hmm. we all do. And he was able to, through his interaction in the fellowship, save these documents, get these documents declassified, um, and then do do research and analysis on these documents to the point that he even um, identified those folks that worked with OSS who were Coast Guard members who were still living, went and interviewed them, oh, wow. did, did a lot of uh, discussions with them. Because that generation doesn't like to talk about um, a lot of what they did. Right. And so, um, um, But Mike was able to do some great research and, uh, um, and bring that to light. So I want to shift focus to, to what you guys are doing today, to the Coast Guard intelligence operation today. When we, we chatted before this interview, we, we had talked about how one of the main differences between the Coast Guard of the past and the Coast Guard today, especially on intelligence, is the professionalization of the intelligence ranks. Can you talk a little bit about how this took place, how Coast Guard intelligence became more and more professionalized in the last, let's say, 20 years or so? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I've been in and out of, of, of Coast Guard intel for uh, the whole time I've been in. I've been in. Uh, over 24 years. So I was able to join when we still had very small numbers and we still sent people to training, but it wasn't a, a programmatic approach to an, an intelligence um, support to a unit. So um, before 9-11, um, about a year before 9-11, the, the plan was in place for the Coast Guard to become a member of the intelligence community, mm-hmm. capital I, capital C intelligence community. Uh, and at the, I think it was actually signed in December 2001. It would have been signed anyway. So what does that mean? What that meant is that there was now integration on certain levels of Coast Guard intelligence with the national intelligence element. The Coast Guard operates under two different authorities when it comes to intelligence. We operate under Title 50, which is a Department of Defense mm-hmm. intelligence authorization subject to Executive Order 12333. Right. But the Coast Guard is simultaneously a federal law enforcement organization. Right. And so we also operate under 14 U.S.C. 89, which are our law enforcement um, authorities, law enforcement intelligence elements. So we are a mix. So depending on where a person is, the billet that that person fills in the Coast Guard, he or she may be working under the intelligence community, Title 50, or under law enforcement intelligence to support Coast Guard missions. Um, and to Coast Guard aims. Right. Sounds a little bit like the FBI, where there's the national security branch and there's the criminal justice law enforcement branch kind of working in concert. It, it is. It is similar. And, of course, the, the, the authorities under them are different depending on where somebody is and what somebody is doing. But, but I think the point that I want to underscore here is that within the Coast Guard, we move back and forth. We move our people back and forth through those authorities. Okay. Somebody may be assigned to the Coast Guard cryptologic group, working under Title 50 authorities, supporting national interests and, and sometimes Department of Defense interests, and their next assignment might be working at a Maritime Intel Fusion Center where they're working under law enforcement intelligence collection uh, authorities to support Coast Guard operations, which ultimately hopefully end up in prosecution, talking about somebody that's illegally fishing, right. somebody that's discharging oil overboard illegally, um, of course smuggling, uh, illegal drug smuggling, and so forth. One of the old conventional wisdoms about military intelligence was that was where careers went to die, where if you, you can never reach the highest levels because you weren't in command, you would never be a theater commander or you'd never be a, a, a chief of staff. Um, was this at one point an issue in the Coast Guard and is now, uh, can you find a real avenue to high promotion doing intelligence? Uh, there was a perception that um, amongst the officer corps um, that, 
intelligence wasn't always the best place to go uh, and build a career. As a matter of fact, when I um, was selected to be an attache in Mexico City, I had several peers tell me, this is pretty much the end of your career, you know that. And um, subsequent to serving in Mexico, I was assigned to command. So I called these folks up and said I should have ended my career years ago uh, (laughs) if this is how the whole thing works out. Um, But yes, it absolutely was. But now uh, a person on the officer side can go from a newly commissioned ensign all the way up to two-star flag officer there are intel assignments and billets throughout that entire structure. Additionally, after 9-11, the Coast Guard established the intelligence specialist rate, which is an enlisted rate, uh, like we'd have bosun mates or gunner's mm-hmm. mates and so forth, um, of young men and women who are um, trained to do intelligence work on the enlisted side. So as an enlisted person inside the Coast Guard, you can reach a very high level as well just doing intelligence. Uh, yes, we have uh, billets from um, the third-class petty officer, or E-4, all the way up to E9 or or Master Chief. And then we also have warrant officers as well. So are there multiple avenues of intelligence jobs like the other agencies? What I mean, you already talked about cryptology a little bit, cyber collection analysis. Is it across the board? Like we would assume, you know, think about Army and Air Force intelligence and CIA and other places, or is it something much more targeted than that? Within the enlisted side and also within the officers, we do not have separate designators for the type of intelligence folks are doing. Having said that, there's a great deal of schooling involved with the discipline of signals intelligence, as you well know. And when our folks go into that, chances are probably good that they're going to stay in that or go back to that several times. Um, same thing on the human side for those of us that are that are human intelligence folks, attache type work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of training that goes into that, so we like to get those folks to take those assignments again. Right. But, no, we are not so specialized as, as DOD or, or as some of the other intel community members such as the cia we're, we're smaller we've got forty thousand active duty right. and and we really can't afford to be that specialized um to some extent i wish we were especially where linguists are concerned um we have a challenging time getting linguists keeping them uh in, in the billets we need them in because there's a great deal of training that goes along with that as well so th- this next question may sound bad but i mean it in the best possible way and i really I, i'm asking it as an opportunity to kind of lay out for our listeners what makes Coast Guard intelligence unique. And really, what does Coast Guard intelligence do that the other 16 agencies in the intelligence community do not? I mean, that is to say, what, do you, what does Coast Guard intelligence bring to the table that CIA can't do or NRO or Army intelligence? That's actually a great question. Um, well, I thought <clears> so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about what intelligence does. Um, intelligence does two things. It warns decision makers and it helps them make better decisions. That's it. Okay, that's the only thing that intelligence, those are the only two things intelligence does. And I think to some extent, um, some um, contingents within the intelligence community, and there's some parts in the Coast Guard that are a little guilty of this too, believe intelligence does something else, that it exists in and of itself to, to continue doing intelligence, and it doesn't. So if we accept that, that intelligence warns decision makers and it helps them make better decisions, then, okay, where are those other organizations that you mentioned supporting what the Coast Guard does? Well, they're not because they're not mandated to, they're not uh, funded to, they're not billeted to. So how do we support the commanding officer of a Coast Guard cutter who needs to go out and enforce regulatory laws against commercial fisheries? Mm-hmm. Okay, we do that by provide, collecting, analyzing, and providing them the information. So the answer would be um, because we're supporting Coast Guard decision makers at their strategic, operational, and tactical level, and we rely on some of the information those other agencies collect and use, but their focus is elsewhere, as it should be. Um, and we are focused on supporting those Coast Guard um, 
decision makers. The Coast Guard calls it providing decision advantage okay. uh, to those folks, which is which is kind of catchy. But it right. basically means <laughs> that you know that that those tactical decision makers can make better decisions based on the information we're providing. So I, I, I'll give you my perception of the. Co- I, I grew up in Miami, as many of our listeners that have been paying attention know, and you spent some time down there as well. And, and the Coast Guard was everywhere. And really, growing up during the 80s, it seemed to have two jobs. One was drug interdiction, and that was, you know, Miami was the central focus of that, and refugees coming from either failed states or repressive states like Haiti or, or Cuba. Um, I wondered about, is it one of the missions of the Coast Guard intelligence to look at political and economic situations in countries like Cuba and Haiti to try to prepare for future mass migrations, to try to pay attention to potential changes in, you know, whether it's the Caribbean or anywhere else to say, hey, look, this country is about to collapse or, or there's, there's about to go through some kind of an uprising. We're going to get a ton of people coming to the United States. Is that something that's within the purview of Coast Guard intelligence? It, it very much is. And, um, and it should be because we, need, we in the Coast Guard Intelligence Enterprise need to be able to tell those decision makers, whether they're wearing stars as flag officers um, or, or a lower level, to be prepared to respond in the event that there's a mass migration. So, yes, of course, we, we look at those um, trends, look at what's going on in those countries. For us, the, <clears throat> the political side of what happens with migrants, you know, that's determined right. by the administration of the State Department. For the Coast Guard, this is a safety of life at sea issue. We know that if hundreds or thousands of people get in the water, some of them are not going to make it. We don't want that to happen. Right. So we need to be positioned to use our resources as best we can uh, in order to respond to that. So you guys, you guys that don't deal with screening people, that's really the DHS when people comes, come into the country. But what about shipping? What about, I mean, a lot of people are worried, whether it's a justified worry or not, about some cargo ship coming into New York or, or into Miami or D.C. with a uh, CBRN weapon or, or some dirty bomb or chemical weapon. Is that the purview of the Coast Guard to try to stop that from happening, to try to meet these ships out before they come into our ports? It is. And so um, uh, ships that are coming in from outside U.S. territorial waters have to provide an advance notice of arrival, an ANOA. It's got to be provided 96 hours before they enter. Part of the job of the unit that I command right now is to screen all of those vessels, screen them against databases, screen them for uh, known malefactors uh, and and uh, people that could be uh, possibly a threat to to the country. Um, and so we do 100% of those screenings. The folks on board, that is the crew and passengers, because this might surprise some of the listeners, people with outstanding warrants will take cruises, uh, and they'll go to the Bahamas, and then they'll come on back to Fort Lauderdale, and, and they might hit as we do our screening. We Coast Guard Intel does our screening. And then we'll let the local authorities know, and they handle it however they best see fit. But the answer is yes, and that's uh, actually a requirement that the Coast Guard now has by law to screen all of those vessels that are coming in um, from foreign. And the other thing the Coast Guard does as well is we actually send teams to visit those foreign ports to inspect the security, the security posture uh, of those foreign ports that are sending or from which commercial ships are coming to the United States. It's a reciprocal agreement. Those countries can send folks here to to inspect our ports as well if they'd like, but that's sort of a way to determine whether or not we're going to continue with the United States receiving shipping from port X, Y, or Z based on their security. So before we jump into your your study you did for NIU, you're not stationed in D.C. anymore. You're here for a very particular reason. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, you, can you let the listeners know why you're in D.C. right now? What, what, what are you doing with the ODNI? 
Um, I'm very fortunate in that, um, <coughs> you got to forgive me, I'm struggling with the cold here. Um, the uh, Director of National Intelligence uh, has um, um, uh, bestowed a, an award uh, on a team of folks from different agencies, uh, Coast Guard, Customs Border Protection, uh, and Center for Disease Control, for our work during the Ebola breakout, which took place uh, a, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago. From the Coast Guard's perspective, we knew that the big threat <clears throat> from Western Africa was the air vector, folks getting on aircraft and flying to Europe or flying over here who may be infected. Mm-hmm. Well, we started to ask the question, well, what about the maritime vector? Are there commercial ships that are leaving West Africa and arriving in the United States inside the incubation period of 21 days? Mm-hmm. And we thought, ah, the number maybe is in the dozens. It wasn't. It was in the hundreds. Oh, wow. um, well, coming here and, and, and many inside the incubation period. So, all right, so what are we going to do? So we need to follow these vessels. We need to track them. We need to let the Coast Guard captains of the port, that's the federal authority that determines what happens in a port, um, know about this so that he or she can posture a response if a response is needed. This doesn't mean there were people who were infected on those vessels, but it was a threat vector that we needed to be aware of. So um, we produced, uh, my unit, uh, daily products that uh, went up to the National Security Staff Center for Disease Control, many of the interested parties. Canada and the UK, we worked very closely with their intelligence enterprises, and uh, fortunately, the director, um, uh, Director Clapper, seen fit to um, uh, recognize us as part of that broader team. Right. So, when you were at National Intelligence University, you did a study on the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico from a couple years ago. It was titled "Unlimited Impossibilities: Intelligence Support for the Deepwater Horizon Response," and again, this is through NIU Press. And when I read this, I was blown away by some of the things that you you talked about uh, it's hard to surprise me but there are certain things in here that we'll talk about that i kind of just put the book down and just started laughing and almost sardonically laughing because i couldn't believe i'll blame my editor for that yes yeah. <laughs> oh you mean the content right content. i'm sorry right I'm sorry. right yeah um so the subject of the book as we talked about the 2010 oil spill in the gulf of mexico british petroleum's deep water horizon or is it still is it just bp now it's bp yeah um and the national plan, or lack thereof, uh, to, for intelligence support to guide the broader intelligence effort. Um, so what drove you to study this particular scenario? Um, so I was sitting in my front lawn um, when we moved into our house in Springfield, which is here in northern Virginia, outside of D.C., and uh, I was reading the Washington Post while the household goods were actually getting unloaded uh, off, of the, off of the truck. And um, I was reading Eugene Robinson's column. Um, and I, I forget the title exactly, but it has something to do with Thad Allen's, which Admiral Allen, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Thad Allen's battle space. And, um, well, Coast Guard doesn't usually use the term battle space very often. That seemed a little odd to me. Um, so as I was reading the column, one of the quotes that came out of it was Admiral Allen telling uh, Mr. Robinson, uh, you know, it would be a crime not to use this response as one of the great learning laboratories for the nation. And I knew um, I was not involved in the response at all, but but I knew there was intel folks down there, and so I started thinking, okay, well, what were they doing? What took place down there? How were they helping the decision makers, or were they not helping them? And so I started doing a little bit of research. Fortunately, I I was fortunate enough to get selected uh, to do this one-year research fellowship, and the only direction the Coast Guard gave me was it needs to be about intelligence and it needs to be about the Coast Guard, and that was it, Mm -hmm. completely hands-off, and it was a unique uh, an outstanding opportunity to, to really spend some time in an in-depth study. So, so that's what piqued my curiosity was Mr. Robinson's column, uh, and um, and I just started making phone calls and reading, and I found out that a lot took place, but 
there was little to none of it was documented. Well, I mean, as you write in the book, there's a ton documented about the oil spill itself, but next to nothing written about the intelligence response. Yeah, even in the official, <laughs> even in the official uh, documentation that came out about it, which I which I think was surprising, and and um, you know, I think part of that might be because. Um, and I talk about it in the book, the, the, the definition of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Domestically and with domestic disaster response, that word sometimes gets people a little exercised. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it shouldn't because, as I said, it's about warning decision makers and helping them make better decisions. Uh, Department of Defense actually has activities they do overseas um, that they call one name, and when they do them domestically, authorized and legally, um, they call it another name. It's the exact same thing, same people, same everything. Right. But they have two different names because they don't want people to get upset about it. Um, and I think part of that might have been um, the issue as well. And then a misunderstanding about the difference between intelligence and investigations, which I, I discuss as I weave through the various um, publications that talk about disaster response. And, and as you already mentioned, you were not part of this disaster response. So what were your sources for this? How did you go about uh, getting the information to write this book? Interviews. Uh, they were primarily interviews, uh, hours and hours of interviews uh, with folks all the way from the former commandant, Admiral Allen, at very senior level decision makers, through to folks that were working at the Unified Area Command, sort of the operational level, and then down to the commanding officers of the cutters, the aircraft commanders that were flying the, um, uh, the intelligence collection missions, um, academia, um, the folks at the Geospatial Lab and LSU were kind enough to host me for several days down there. They supported the response, and they were able to give me a, 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 um, a very broad but easily understood definition of how they do what they do in terms of geospatial support to this. As I mentioned, I'm a human intel, human turret. I don't come from this field. Um, and one of the reasons I chose this to study as well is I'm not from the part of the Coast Guard that does oil uh, cleanup or disaster response of that nature. Um, as you mentioned, my background has been in intelligence and, and counter-smuggling, so I was hopeful that I was not going to bring author bias to this study, right. which I was afraid I would have done if I looked at one of those other areas where I'd worked quite a bit. For, for our listeners who haven't read this book yet, and I, I strongly encourage people to, to grab a copy of it one way or another, again, you can read it for free online, uh, give, a little bit, give a little bit of the background of this spill. Uh, what you write in the book is after the Exxon Valdez disaster, which many people will remember back in the 80s, Congress gave the Coast Guard additional funding to respond to what were called SONS, SONS, is that how SONS, that, SONS which spills, spills of national significance. Um, and this is one of those, certainly. I mean, the, the Deepwater Horizon required the largest oil spill response in U.S. history. And as you write in the book, uh, 14% of the Coast Guard Workforce, including reservists, were deployed to react to this. And that wasn't just the Coast Guard. It was BP people. It was DOD people. It was a whole host of people. Um, And and all this is based on what you you describe in the book as the National Response Framework of 2008. Can you talk a little bit about what led up to uh, some of the laws and some of the frameworks that were designed to prevent what eventually happens from happening? Right. Right. That's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I'm it, thinking more of NIMS and NIP and kind of the right. difference between so, the two. So, so <clears throat> the federal government um, has two types of roles in disaster response, okay? Um, the one role is where the federal government takes the lead and comes in and runs the response, okay? That is what takes place during a spill of national significance, the SANS. 
Okay. The other type of response is when there is a natural disaster, where there is a hurricane, for example. In that type of response, the federal government supports the states, and the state authorities take the lead. So um, these various um, uh, frameworks that I look at, uh, National Infrastructure Protection Plan, NIMS, and so forth, is the federal government's attempt to come up with a plan, plan's too strong a word, framework, or maybe confederation is better, approach to um, supporting these types of response. One of the interesting things with, with Deepwater Horizon that I found is that the states didn't fully understand this either, and they thought, some of them, that they had the lead because there had been so many hurricane issues, um, and there, there was misunderstanding there between the federal government and the states in terms of who's in charge, who's paying for things, right. and, and who's directing things. I mean, I, I've, I've lived through 11 hurricanes in Miami. I, Katrina, Andrew... And just the, the confusion about who's in charge after the fact uh, was extraordinary to me, where you had the Florida National Guard, you had FEMA, you had military units, obviously the Coast Guard was there too, and everyone looking at everybody else saying, who's in charge, who has a responsibility, and who is the, the overall commander on the ground? And it didn't seem like anybody knew anything about any of this when it came to Deepwater Horizon. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of General Hague moments where people stood up and said they were in charge, and maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't, maybe they were in charge of some things and not other things. Um, so, yeah, it is very confusing, and, 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 and part of the point, as you brought up, that, that I make in the book is when there's no plan, you're, everything is reaction. Right. Everything's a pickup game. You're already behind, and that doesn't mean the incident fits the plan, but it's the planning that matters. It's the process of planning a response, in this case an intelligence response, um, uh, to it. And with the absence of that, it's just a complete pickup game. And what I found extraordinary in the worst way uh, was that the Deepwater Horizon disaster was the worst-case scenario. But, of course, no one planned for the worst-case scenario. Everyone assumed it would never happen, and especially BP in this case. And you talk in the book that there was a sort of plan for one of these things with what were called easy-to-follow instructions about a minor oil spill, but not the kind of massive spill that you had in this case. That's exactly right. And and as I bring out when I talk about... uh, Taylor's book, Black Swan, you know, just because something's on the end of the bell curves, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It means it happens with much less frequency. And that's exactly what what we saw here was a black swan event. Um, And BP was not prepared for it. And I mentioned in my book (laughs) that their their documents dealt with animals, flora, fauna that weren't even native to certain areas. And it appears that it had been some some cutting and pasting. Um, But but the federal government also... um, um, needs to take a look at how it does because the federal government was supposed to review right, I, or did review BP's plans yeah. and and um, to the extent that they were thoughtfully reviewed, I'm I'm not so certain I was. Well, so I was reading and I wanted to be mad at BP and then I turned the page and I'm like, oh, well, that that makes sense. The government just didn't review it and, uh, or, or didn't review it thoroughly enough, or and, and I was not able to get a lot of clarity on what didn't quite right. happen there in terms of reviewing those BP plans. But yeah, there's a lot of. Um, there are a lot of issues to be addressed with looking at this response. So at the heart of your book is about the intel effort and the, the lack unity of command where everyone looking at everybody else from the Coast Guard to DHS, DOD, NGA was there, all others. Uh, and you, you talk in the book that it took more than a month and a half to really develop a system that had any usefulness whatsoever for decision makers. Uh, and even then, as you write, there's a ton of collection being done. And collection wasn't the issue. It really comes down to analysis and dissemination of information. That's exactly right. And and so 
we did a fairly good job collecting it, whether the collection was done through photographs, through surface observations, or through um, satellite imagery, uh, both commercial um, through national systems uh, that, the, that the United States government owns. The analysis was difficult. Um, having somebody who has expertise in looking at um, an anomaly on the water and being able to say, it's oil, it's this type of oil, it's seaweed, right. I don't know what it is, um, there wasn't enough of that expertise down there in the beginning of this, of this event. Um, oil on the water causes anomaly. You can usually tell that it's oil, but you can't tell what type of oil, and you can't tell if it's skimmable. So um, that was what was important because we're not going to send assets to try and collect oil that can't be skimmed off the surface. Well, and skimmable is a, is a key word here. I mean, the idea of cleanup is kind of pulling the oil out. Now, skimmable made my spell check want to explode my computer <laughs> when I typed it in, but it really comes down as one of the key components to this cleanup. And that, <clears throat> as you write in the book, the Emmett guys who are incredibly well-versed in doing imagery and geospatial intelligence are used to counting tanks and used to looking at Soviet uh, Russian aircraft, and now you're asking them to figure out what kind of oil they're looking at in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Exactly. And what I found was they could find that something was there. I'm talking the analysts looking at imagery will say it was collected from a satellite. But to actually determine the type, they really needed eyeballs on that oil. And they needed somebody in an aircraft or a helicopter or a ship to, to stand there and take a look at it and have an idea what they were looking at. Let's talk about aircraft and helicopters because another key component here that, again, made me put down the book and just be flabbergasted is the amount of almost air-to-air collisions that took place. The lack of air tasking almost led to disaster after disaster. And when it came down to it, airspace control was the key to the response. And you kind of explain the, the, the situation in the book where it finally was a, a uh, Thad Allen, Admiral Allen, sitting down with President Obama and going to the highest levels to say something needs to be done here. Right, exactly. The, the story is they were flying back, that is the President and Admiral Allen flying back on Air Force One from the response, and uh, Admiral Allen was talking to an Air Force steward, um, and the president sat down and said, what do you need? And Admiral Allen said, I need control of the skies. I need control of all the aircraft that are moving. Um, and uh, Admiral Allen told me he got that idea from the Haiti response, uh, which he was uh, in charge, the Haiti earthquake response mm-hmm. as well. So, um, yes, uh, and this became very interesting because overseas – where the Department of Defense might be running an event, it's very simple. They say nobody flies anything at any altitude unless they're part of what's called an air tasking order, which says you're taking off from here, you're doing this mission for this reason, you're going to be working in this area, whether it's intelligence collection or targeting um, or, or reconnaissance or delivery, what have you. Domestically, U.S. domestically, that is much harder to do because there's an argument about who has the authority to do that. The FAA will tell you they do, but they're not going to do an air tasking order. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the states will say, well, we're going to fly state missions to support our information requirements. We're not federal government. We don't have to play ball. There was one federal agency in particular that refused to take part in an air tasking order when the U.S. Air Force, finally the 601st down in Tyndall, started getting this whole thing going. As a result, there were eight, might have been ten, but eight I can prove, um, near collisions of aircraft um, flying around over there, everything from carrying uh, press to carrying uh, dignitaries to, to doing information collection to shuttling support. There's many uh, oil rigs out there that need support, and those support, food, et cetera, is provided by the aircraft. So um, the other key point that I, I hope comes out in the book is that on a truly federal disaster response like this, the federal government is the only entity 
that can come in, primarily through Department of Defense, and say, we are going to make sure everything moves the way we want it to move. And that's an executive executive level, uh, you know, administration, presidential level decision. Um, and, and to a large extent, as the disaster response matured, the air tasking order matured, and there became a much more orderly sense to this. The other reason you want an air tasking order is you don't want one agency out collecting information, the same information at the same location right. that another agency is out there collecting. It's duplicative, it's expensive, uh, and it's a waste of time and effort. And that's the other thing that an air tasking order does is it it, it, it pulls all of that out, it prioritizes, it determines what's the most important for which mission set. So to wrap this up, I was going to do a long question about lessons learned, but I think it's it's much more appropriate for me to kind of tell you out in listener world what my notes say. I have lessons learned, question mark, and I have nope. That to me was the most frustrating thing about reading this book is you have all this clear potential way of making things better and then as you as you describe it there's just there's no there 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 you even talk about a 2011 exercise in in the midwest of the united states uh that was a complete disaster trying to build upon this lesson learned which uh as you explained just did not take place yeah I, i think i titled that section lessons experienced or not lessons learned um, and it is frustrating, and, and it was frustrating during that uh, national-level exercise 11, which is what you mentioned there, which is this earth, uh, uh, contingency. There's an earthquake in, in the Midwest, and lots of things are broken, and people are harmed, and how do we respond? There were people sitting. There were, there were Coast Guard senior professionals sitting in that room with me who'd been through Deepwater Horizon and turned around and said, we, we need a common operating picture. We need intelligence, but we need all of these things. Why aren't these things worked into this exercise? Because, of course, you don't exercise something, it becomes much harder right. to apply it when, when you get downrange. And, and so, yes, I, I think that is frustrating, and I think part of the sense was once the well was capped, talking Deepwater Horizon now, everybody went, good job. <laughs> Let's pack up our stuff, and I don't mean pack up our stuff and leave those folks. There's still a lot of work to do, but from a federal level, you know, good job, high fives, and, and off we go. And the one thing that we can all be guaranteed – is there will be another major maritime catastrophe, whether it be a hurricane, uh, whether it be a, a tsunami, whether it be a you know a person induced, whether it be a terrorist incident, and and part of the point I try to make in this book is we need to be ready as an intelligence as intelligence organizations to support those decision makers when that happens. It matters not what caused it; it matters how we're able to respond to it and how we're able to assist those decision makers. And when I was pulling the thread. <laughs> So you got me fired up, Vince. When I was pulling the thread even (laughs) further, as I mentioned in the book, you know, there's some other authors that that have have found these same things. Uh, Joyce Dietrich in her work about um, uh, um, the hurricane that hit uh, New Orleans, uh, Hurricane Katrina, I write in there that her summary of intelligence support to to that disaster response, she could have been writing about Deepwater Horizon. I found almost the exact same things. So my hope is that to some degree this um, work moves the ball a couple yards in terms of intelligence being able to support disaster response or major maritime catastrophes. Captain Eric Telfer is the commanding officer of the Coast Guard Maritime Intelligence Fusion Center Atlantic in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He is also the author of Unlimited Impossibilities, Intelligence Support to the Deepwater Horizon Response, which can be seen for free on the NIU website, which is ni-u.edu, 
Or if you're a government employee, you can get a, a physical copy of this. I always like the physical copies. Or if the general public wants to purchase one from the GPO or even from Amazon, I think it's less than 10 bucks. So it's an awesome deal for a book that will both fascinate you and frustrate the bejesus out of you uh, as you can see what could have been and what hopefully will be in the future. So, Captain Telfer, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to CyberWire.com survey. That's CyberWire.com survey to share your feedback now.